Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Devil Shelix. I'm Kayla. And I am Sally. And today, we're going to be discussing writing your first paper. I know for a lot of people, writing their first paper is a time that is very overwhelming. It can feel like you've just been doing experiments forever, and now you have to like make them have some sort of concrete outcomes. And that can be very stressful and overwhelming. Kayla, I will say that once again, you are somewhat of a writing papers expert. So we are very blessed to have you on our podcasting team to share with the listeners all of our best advice for writing their first paper or second or third paper, as you will. I don't feel like an expert, but I do think both of us have gone through the weird journey of writing our first paper. Like Sally said, for a long time at the beginning of graduate school, you're just like doing experiments. And if you've never done this before, you don't really know, what am I getting to? Sometimes, I guess it depends on your project, but sometimes it's just not really clear how you're going to make this thing into something cohesive. So let's talk about first when to start writing. Sally, do you have an opinion on when to start writing? Well, one option is that one day your boss will be like, it's time to graduate, make a paper. Or they'll say, I'm invited to write a review about blah, blah, blah. So just write me a draft. And we will get to reviews later on the episode. I think that's its own special beast. But I think you should start writing when you have something to say. Like when there's enough pieces of data that are starting to tell a story in one direction. So you probably, like, it doesn't have to be when you've like solved all the problems or like figured out the entire protein pathway or like done the final step and purified the synthesis and got multigram scale. But when you're on a path that is leading somewhere concrete, it's time to start thinking about how to turn it into a paper. What do you think, Kayla? When you have a phenomenon, like when you have something that is the nail holding the story together, that's when it's time to start thinking about how to turn it into a paper. It's a little bit overwhelming to get started, but probably the easiest way to start for anyone is to start with the methods. Sally, when can you start writing methods and what's the best way to do that? The advice I will say that I didn't follow is that your method section should be written as you go. In our episode about how to make a good impression in your summer internship or research rotation, We talk about how your lab notebook should be clear enough that someone else can just do all the same steps and get the same results. So ideally, you would like copy paste your lab notebook and that's the outline of the method section. Realistically, I think a lot of writers start with the method section when they're writing a paper. At least for me, it takes less mental energy, right? Like figuring out what's the story, what's the take-home message, what's the point of this paper, why is it different than a billion other papers also about like hydrogels, right? That is tricky. Telling the reader that to synthesize the polymer, first you take this, this, and this starting material at these ratios, then you incubate at this temperature, then you stir under anhydrous conditions with these solvents for this amount of time, then you purify using this method in the centrifuge, followed by this method on the lyophilizer. Like, that is your bread and butter. You do that every day. You can easily write a few paragraphs. And at least for me, once I start with the methods, I get in the flow and I can feel like, okay, I have something here. But that's also the easy part. The thing that you talk a lot about, Kayla, what are the figures? Can you walk us through the process of why identifying the figures in a paper 
is very much a key step of your writing process. Yeah, once you start putting the methods together, you know, you're you're in the groove. And the next thing is, how are you going to lay out the story? The figures guide the whole story. And it's also a way to think about how the data, what data you actually have and how it all pieces together. I know there's controversy on what program to use for figure making, but I like to make them in Illustrator, which I've had access to. And and there's like the free version, which is Inkscape. What I like about it is I can lay out all the figures in the same document so I can actually see how the figures flow together. Even if I don't have the data yet, I write a really high level, very dumb figure caption. <laughs> like the first one might be cells grow quickly using new drug. And then the second one might be new drug also induces this pathway. So it's something to think about how do I get from one to two to three to four. And I will lay those out in one direction and then add some blank space for things that I'll move to supplement and then just start piling in some data that I already have. Because sometimes you either have less data than you think and you need to see that or you have more data than you think, or you're just kind of forgetting what you actually have. And you need to curate it like you're organizing a closet. Like, where am I going to put this stuff? How am I going to categorize it? Laying out the storyboard is the first mental output after you're in the groove with the methods. If you're not quite sure how many figures you should even have and like what should even be in a figure and like do you need a figure explaining the logic of your experiment, which spoiler alert, you almost always do. I would say find some papers that are similar in journals that you read often for your field and see what they do. So like in my field in graduate school, you know, we did surgical adhesive. So a lot of surgical adhesive papers would have the following format or even just biomaterials, hydrogel papers in general. Figure one is about the theory of the hydrogel design. And there's some sort of like chem draw figure of the actual cross-linking reaction, as well as like a Microsoft PowerPoint illustrated figure showing like squiggly lines representing the polymer chains and like what side groups they are and what the shape is, like if it's a branched polymer or a star-shaped polymer, whatever. And then figure one would also have something else about like why this cross-linking was chosen or whatever. Figure two is usually like a photo of your material and some chemical characterization, like an NMR showing, yes, it is an anhydroxyacinamide bonded to your peg. Figure three would be mechanical characterization data. Figure four, biological characterization data, like showing that you grow with fibroblasts and they didn't die. Figure five, some sort of animal data. If you go to the literature, you're going to find 100 papers that fit what I just said. And that's for my field, right? So learn the formula for your field and you can run with it. And that's not to say you have to have animal data to make a figure. That's not to say you have to do NMR to confirm that your polymer is what you said it was. But learning from the literature, like I'm not even in that field anymore. And I still can recite those sequence of figures because if you're reading the literature and you spend effort trying to figure out what the sequence of figures is, you'll nail it every time. Using papers as a guide, making your storyboard. And also I feel it's at this stage that a lot of authors realize that key controls are missing. That's another reason, like you can write the methods whenever you want, but aligning on what the figures are and walking through the logic, looking only at the figures and making sure that all the controls are there or you have reasonable reasons for excluding them besides I forgot, that's very important at this stage. That's so true. 
yeah, figuring out key controls and just figuring out what you're missing in general. If you're missing a key experiment to show that it's not protein A, it's protein B, and you're eliminating that possibility, then you realize that as you're starting to put that together. Speaking of important things to get aligned with, right? One is, what is this phenomenon that you have going on? One is, what is the data that we're going to show in the paper? Another one is, guys, aligning with PI and co-authors. Kayla, why is it important to align with PI and co-authors? And what issues have you seen in cases where this maybe doesn't go well, or the conversations aren't strong in the beginning and it causes chaos later? This is getting into the authorship arena, which we could have a whole episode on the ethics of authorship. But let me say this, if you're writing or you're thinking about writing your first paper, it might feel weird to start talking about authorship really early, but it shouldn't be weird. This is important. I feel like at least half of papers have some disagreement about authorship. (laughs) And sometimes it's usually it's like minor. It's like, well, I should have been third instead of fourth. But then there's like bigger things like disagreement about who should even be on the paper. Like, did that co-author actually do enough work or are they just slacking? Are they like trying to sneak into a paper by, you know, giving you like, half of a graph, but then now you're on your own. Like there's all kinds of weird things that can start happening. A big one, I think is just disagreement on author order. So it's like first who gets included, second, the author order. And ideally this is something that you have a discussion with your advisor and they can help you walk through it. I personally think that first author should have a say too in how the order gets laid out. But what happens when there's a co-first situation? You think, okay, so, you know, we're going to be co-first, but who's first co-first? And what if an author has graduated? Who advocates for that person to stay on the paper? Or is someone going to try to cut them out? So I think one thing you can do besides trying to discuss this with people as you get them involved in the project is to draft, like when you're starting to draft your paper is to draft the author list because you can at least start thinking about who should at least be on it, who shouldn't be on it. You can add people as you think of them. If you've forgotten someone, you can start talking about it with your advisor so that they're on the same page as you and people know if they're going to work with you, where their contribution is going to stand relative to who's already there. And I would say I have heard from students where they go to their PI and they're like, I want to be third author on this paper because I'm helping Kayla with this project or whatever. Right. And on the one hand, I do think that when it comes to disagreements about authorship, too many PIs are not taking upon themselves the role of manager to resolve disputes in their team. That's a key role of manager is to resolve disputes within your own team. And a lot of PIs are shy about doing this and they choose not to, and they leave it to their students to fight among themselves, which is not good leadership. That's just passing the buck and abdicating responsibility. So there's two things. One is PIs reluctant to resolve disputes. The other is PIs reluctant to be committal, to say like, yes, Kayla, I understand that you've contributed to this publication. And I do agree that it is at the level of a third author position because you didn't do as much as so-and-so and this other person, but you definitely did more than these other randos. However, I feel that PIs are often reluctant to say this kind of thing because they've seen it backfire, right? They've seen the situation where someone they told would be third author 
like gets a job in ghosts and then doesn't participate in any of the rewrites and then is pissed when they come back at the end of the day and are now eighth author because everyone else in between stepped up in the interim. In these conversations, I think you can say, just be very upfront. Like the tentative author list as of now is X. This may change if people's responsibilities and roles change. I've been on both sides. I've been in a situation where other people, like where I really stepped up and was the reason the paper got across the finish line and got a high authorship because of it. And I've also been in a situation where other people stepped up, maybe because reviewers asked for a lot more data on parts of the project they worked on. So suddenly like their minor part became like a bigger part. And so they are now in front of me on the author list and like, that's fine. But I think being again, open and transparent about your thought process from the beginning. And it's okay to say this is the tentative author list based off of contributions so far. Another thing I will add, okay, is if you find yourself thanking individuals in the acknowledgement section for actual work that they did, they probably need to be authors. So often we see like texts or key players at core facilities, for example, being in the paper in the acknowledgement section when really they have contributed work that merits authorship. Even if the work is like, I work at the flow cytometry core facility and I did the flow for this project. There are some haters who think that that doesn't mean authorship because they were just working. No, if a grad student in your lab had done the flow, they would have gotten authorship. So don't be, don't be mean about it and just be generous. Inclusion is obviously a core value of your group. So you want to be inclusive on your author list. I will say this. I think that a lot of the rules and policies that tend to be more conservative on who should be authors, like, oh, exclude this person, exclude that person. I think that they were designed to exclude that thing where like, I have a paper, it's pretty good. I know I can get it in a great journal if I like include such and such famous person as an author. That's what they were designed for. And in that situation, such and such famous person should not be an author because they didn't really do anything. However, I think they're often used to exclude people at the low power end of the academic spectrum. They're used to exclude techs. They're used to exclude core facility workers. They're used to exclude undergraduate students, right? So knock it off, be inclusive, and be transparent throughout the process about your way of thinking so that it's not a surprise, right? People don't want to be surprised, you know, assume good intent, but be transparent. It's a weird conversation to have but you got to have it. And it's easier to have it before you're in deep than at the end. Another one that comes up on similar lines is what journal to target. Some people think you should have a target journal in mind. In my experience, it's hard to say where the paper is appropriate until you kind of have it in like at least 80% complete, right? And you can see the data together with all the text and you can understand holistically like, oh, this is giving biomaterials versus this is giving nature methods versus it's giving cell. I wouldn't know. I've never published in like an awesome journal. I feel the discussions around where to send the paper can be stressful. Again, PIs, you gotta do better on this. And I've heard both sides. Like I've heard PIs have delusions about an amazing journal that their work should go to. And I've also heard students have delusions about an amazing journal that their work could go to, right? So it's about coming to agreement of realistically where you can target. I think that every paper has a goal, right? The goal of the paper is, well, there's two goals. One goal is to get the paper published so that your fields can learn about whatever the paper is about. The other goal is to advance the career of the authors, right? So Kayla, you're applying to faculty positions. It's way more important to you to have a paper out about this project in the next however many months 
than it is for you to have a sell paper. As a co-author, you might say, let's not target sell, let's target somewhere where we can get this push through the door. Or the PI might be going up for tenure. So they actually do need a sell paper in order to get tenure at a toxic institution that ascribes value of research to journal impact factor. So you have to think about what are the goals of the paper for the co-authors, and you have to take that into consideration. Now, here I will do a plug for preprints. I was going to say, okay, we're getting into preprint territory. So I personally have never published at a preprint because I have never been in an environment where that was done. However, it's twenty. It's the year of our science, 2023, people. Get on board, send it to a preprint server. This is how you as a professor can have the best of both worlds, okay? Because you can get that nature paper or whatever you want, and you can also get your postdoc a faculty job. You can get your undergrad into grad school. You can get your graduate student a PhD. Everyone in your lab is underpaid, including yourself probably. And so you need to help them get to the next stage of their career. And preprints are the tool to do this. In support of preprints, I heard a story about a very hot new tech that two labs had independently discovered. And one lab had a preprint and both labs submitted to a very hot journal. And the hot journal recognized the ones that had submitted to the preprint. As being the first to identify whatever phenomenon. Well, well, well. Which is like the wildest thing, right? Because everyone says, oh, I can't do preprints. I don't want to get scooped. It's like, it's not scooping if your name is on the research, okay? Because now NIH recognizes preprints as publications, like as part of like a measure of productivity, not not the same as a peer-reviewed, of course, but like they will recognize that, especially for like a fellowship application, that this is getting more traction. Yes, so I would say... Preprints help you be a better PI. When you're a PI, your your product is not your research, it's your people. So preprints help your people. So you have to do preprints. And I think, I think you can be strategic about it, right? Like you can look around and you can say like, okay, ACS Materials Interfaces has recently published a lot of stuff about whatever topic. This is on this topic. So I could probably like get in because they're publishing a lot on this thing and I'm in this thing, right? You can look at the trends. You can look at, you know, who the associate editors are, kind of like how you read about who's on your study section, right? You can read who the associate editors are. You can say, oh, one of these associate editors that would be the one that my paper is assigned to, like, I know him or like, I know from conferences that he feels the same way that I do about the real power of muscle inspired adhesives. And he thinks it's X. And I also think it's X. So should admit there, as opposed to this other paper where the associate editor who this would be assigned to is like actually my PI's academic rival. And that's kind of the thing that your PI can help with, right? Like PIs know this better than you. They've been in the game longer. It's kind of their job. No, their real job is helping you, but that's our second job. You can be strategic in the middle tier to figure out what is a good target that is not delusional. Let's touch quickly on the difference between writing review paper and a research paper. So most of what we've said kind of applies to both, but reviews have their own little special secret things that you can learn from. So number one tip for any paper, I don't want to call anyone out, but I do I do live with someone who wrote multiple papers, like now, not like my grad school roommates, they're stars. I do live with someone who, to my knowledge, I guess we'll edit this out if I ask him later and that's not true. To my knowledge, wrote all of their papers without the use of a reference manager. 
oh what no um yeah so they were just in there like putting parentheses one parentheses two and then like having it at the end and like doing it all by hand it's like sir sir this is 2023 well I guess it was like 2017 but it's like sir this is 2017 like what are you doing you the reference manager just ask your lab what they use if they're on if they're all on Zotero get on Zotero if they're all on EndNote whatever Use a reference manager. If you don't know what I'm talking about, ask someone that does. It will save you literal hours. And it will also save your partner um, hours of reading your drafts and being like, this reference doesn't have a journal name. This reference doesn't have any authors listed, etc. Because you weren't doing it by hand. Okay, so number one tip of reviews is to use a reference manager. I remember when I first discovered this, and I was blown away. I couldn't believe I had survived that long without one. Yeah, so do that. And you can also use a reference manager to organize your references, right? Like as you read papers, like put them in folders called like muscle adhesive glues and then called like fetal surgery and then called like whatever. Okay, with writing a review, the hardest or easiest part is choosing references. It's hard when you're in a really big field that has a bajillion papers on the topic that you're discussing. And it's easy when you're in a smaller field or you've narrowed your topic down enough, or you're in a niche space where you know exactly the 10 papers that are going to hold the story together, you know all of their labs and you've met all of them in person because that's how big the field is. The most important thing for writing a review paper, in my opinion, besides using a reference manager, which I feel like is like, that's the zero thing. Okay. So the first thing that you must do when writing a review paper is align on the scope of the review. With your PI, right? With your PI. And uh, there's like another student or like there's another key co-author writing it with you. Like the key players need to be aligned early on on what the scope is. So as you were saying, Kayla, you might be in a niche field. Like I have two review papers where I'm an author. One is from a very niche field and it's called Biomaterials in Fetal Surgery. Like that's the title of the paper because there are literally no other reviews on this topic. So the world was my oyster. I covered every biomaterial that's ever been used or maybe will be used in the future in fetal surgery. I was told by my PI, he goes, Sally, I hope you're not be will be offended. Like this is an important paper, but I don't think it's going to get very many citations. It's a very niche review. I was like, don't worry, it'll get citations. And it does. It has like a decent number, but it's like, you know, that's important, right? Like you need to level set expectations. Right. And then another paper that I was on as a, a review, it's the other thing. It's like a pretty big field, which, you know, my co-author and I were given the assignment of like, okay, something about adhesives, maybe something about like bio-inspired, maybe something about like, do we want to do all adhesives? Do we want to do medical adhesives? Do we want to do like only clinical adhesives or like anything promising? So for that one, the scope is not all bio-inspiration, but marine-inspired. So like ocean organisms only, adhesives for clinical applications or or potential clinical applications. So we aren't doing like muscle-inspired glue for the aerospace industry. We're not doing like kangaroo-inspired hydrogels for the cement industry, right? That doesn't even make sense. It's like a narrowed scope. And I will say, sometimes it does take some time in the field to figure out what your scope should be and where there aren't any other papers. And if it's just like, if you've been told like Kayla, you need to write a review on cardiac biomaterials. And if there maybe is a good reason to have a wide scope and to not narrow it down, one tool in your toolbox to define the scope is 
time. So what you're going to do is you're going to go to Google Scholar and you're going to find your favorite review from like the last 10 years. Let's say it was four years ago. Then that's made your job easy. You can say in the abstract, like this review covers all major developments in cardiac biomaterials since the amazing Wolf and Winkler 2014. Then boom, there's your scope. That's true. Yeah, it's a it's a more of an update review than you're going to survey every paper from 1966 onward. When you're new to a field, which presumably if this is your first paper, you're new to the field, it's just hard to, it's overwhelming to get started because the literature, it's not just papers, it's like a historical landscape. And you're trying to learn the history of this subspace that you're thinking about. There's real humans that did real work that has been involved in now these papers that you're getting. So you may not know the backstory to which of these papers was important at a certain time and which of these papers has kind of been debunked or whatever since then. So it's just, it's a, it's a lot to start off with. And I think that at the beginning, I, I feel like I spent a lot of time just looking through abstracts and trying to figure out what that landscape looks like so that I can narrow in on what the scope should really be, like what's the most prescient question to answer in a review, and then circle back and pick out the key references. That's the thing I worry about when I'm writing a review. I often worry like, oh my gosh, what if I forget a whole branch of this work? What if I leave out the papers of a key person? And that's sort of what your PI is for, right? Like they hopefully have their finger on the pulse of that a little bit better than you will. Another thing we should touch on briefly is we talked about the structure of regular paper research papers. Do you have any tips, Kayla, for structuring a review paper? This to me is the fun part because I like to start with what I think the structure should be. Like, for example, when I was writing a paper on hyaluronic acid, I was like, okay, I'm going to talk about like its interaction with cells and then like how people put it into materials. And then I brought a little bit about what I thought the subcategories of those two spaces should be. And then I spent time with the literature and realized that actually it was a little bit different than I thought it was. I think that iterating is important for getting the structure down because hopefully you have like some sense of what the scope should be. But as you actually do the primary work of looking for the data and the research, that might shift. And that's fine. Yeah. I would say as you are gathering references, first of all, don't spend too long just reading the literature. Like you don't just go away for four months or for four weeks to write a review and come back with nothing. You should be taking notes on the key papers and what they are and summarizing them in one or two sentences as you go. Then you'll have this list of references themes. And then I don't want to say like write each one on a note card and sort them in different ways and see what makes sense. But great reviews use categories and subheadings very well and very frequently to say, okay, biomaterials and fetal surgery. We have adhesives, we have patches, we have stents, and we have futuristic stuff. And within adhesives, we have this and this. Within futuristic stuff, we have stem cell transplantation. We have this and this and this. Think about those subcategories. And then also Think about the order in which you would present the different groups, right? Probably makes sense to do the thing that's the most cutting edge or the least well-developed at the end to kind of leave with that futuristic note. Maybe do the thing that's the most well-developed in the beginning because the audience might have that little bit of familiarity. 
So think about the structure of the review because the, the best review structure probably isn't just a chronological history of every paper that's ever been published by order of publication, which I've seen some review drafts that are just that. Somebody might want to read that, but I don't. So, okay. So some of the stuff that we're talking about for reviews might be applicable when writing an introduction for a research. Instead of writing a mini review as part of your paper, how can you narrow down to the X most important references to get the reader into your primary research article. This is what I always did in my first draft. And I think it's basic and cliche, but I think it works, which is your first sentence is really broad. And then each subsequent sentence of the first paragraph, not the abstract, but each subsequent sentence of the first paragraph narrows it down more and more to the last sentence of your introduction should say in one sentence what the paper is about. Then you rewind a little bit after that first paragraph and you think, okay, what key pieces of information, key pieces of information does my audience need to know in order to understand why I'm doing what I'm doing? Because after the one to three paragraph introduction, you're going to jump right into the science and you're going to say like, we designed this polymer. So what do they need to know to appreciate why you designed this polymer? So they need to know like why you're using that polymer backbone and why you're doing muscle inspired chemistry and something about what the application could be in the future. It doesn't need to be everything. It's just what are the key things? And then references. This is where it's important to like find the key references, not just a reference to what you're talking about. My best pro tip for doing this is to go to a target journal that you could see your paper going to. Pulling up papers that are similar to yours, but not on the same topic, because I don't want to plagiarize by accident, and then using their structure. So like going to a paper, for me, if I'm writing about a cancer story, going and reading about a stem cell story, I can see how they're moving through it, like roughly how many paragraphs there are, how much transition there is, how many references they're including, and use that as some guiding principle, almost like a fill in the blank. How am I going to lay something out similarly? And then, like you said, try to tell exactly enough that the reader needs to know to understand the importance and the purpose and the outcome of the paper without reviewing the entire field. I feel like results are usually pretty easy by the time that you've laid out your figures. So you're you're kind of just walking us through that. I, the only thing I would say is that I think there's a temptation to try to do all your introduction to everything in the introduction. But in reality, as you're going through results and discussion, especially if they're combined, you're going to still be citing papers. You don't have to fit everything into the intro. Sometimes you might say, okay, so, you know, we've introduced this topic, like why I want to study cell mechanics. And then now I'm getting into the space where also there's been a lot of work on this specific part of actin. And so we looked at this specific part of actin and then keep going. And then discussion. Any pro tips for discussion? In the case where results and discussion are separated, like you're saying about results, discussion should flow. This is why you, I write the methods first. That's easy. Then I write the intro. That, that's hard. Then I write results. That's medium. Then I write discussion. By the time you get there, it's easy. If you have a well laid out paper with concrete figures, you're solid on the figure captions. The discussion is just like, what did we learn here today, kids? And then the last three sentences are like, where could this go next, guys? And you're good. And conclusion just kind of restates the whole thing, right? I would say for discussion, you want to include what are some limitations of your paper. And instead of saying the sky high and futuristic goals, it's better to say like the next steps, like realistic next steps. Like if I make a organ on chip, 
the next step is not to go straight to patients. Like the next step is to demonstrate this other sub-function of the organ on chip. So, so that gives a lot better context for your field. Another thing I would say is as a peer reviewer and as someone who received peer review feedback on my own work, I will say that the discussion section is where people get in trouble. And it's for exactly this thing you're saying, right? A good paper is not a paper that goes into a good journal. A good paper is not a paper that gets cited a lot. A good paper is a paper where the data that they have shown matches the conclusions that they have written. And this overreach that you're describing, Kayla, not showing what are the limitations. And then at the end of the paper being like, because we made this um, density gradient hydrogel, we will solve all of glioblastoma, right? Don't say that. You can say, this work contributes another tool to our understanding of how cells respond to mechanical cues and can be applied to understand cells, both normal and pathological cells, for example, glioblastoma. Don't overreach because that will make peer reviewers not happy. Do the claims match the data is what makes a good paper, a well-written paper that you should be proud of no matter where it gets published. When you're getting to the end stages, do you have any advice for soccer co-authors who are not contributing their two paragraphs or for your PI who is letting your paper sit on their desk for months? Any pro tip? Yes. I think Slacker co-authors are a little bit easier because you have more tools in your tool belt. One tool in your tool belt is your PI. Going to your PI saying, look, Kayla, Sally hasn't like sent me these paragraphs. Like, what do I do? And then you can, the PI can reach out to Sally directly or like whatever, make it happen. Another thing that you can do for co-authors, if you're like, I would say align with your PI on this first because you don't want to like ruffle too many feathers, but especially if there's someone that's graduated, you can email them and you can say, hey, Kayla, You've probably seen the emails with all everyone going back and forth on these drafts. I noticed that I haven't heard from you about your comments on the draft, or I haven't heard from you to receive your two paragraphs in the method section of describing the HPLC protocol. We do want to get this submitted. So I would ask that you're able to send it to me by X day, give it one to two weeks, depending on how long has already passed, right? Uh, I asked you to send it to me by X day. If I haven't received it by X day, then I will... Assume that you don't have any changes to the paper if it's if you're waiting on their feedback on the final draft. Or if I have received it by X day, I will draft the HPLC protocol based off of previous and send it to you for review. Sometimes it's just the activation energy. I would not be shy about writing a draft and then sending it to them. Or you can say, would you like me to write a first draft? And then you can just provide edits. I think it's a lot easier for people to be like, I actually did a 50 to 90% gradient, not a 40 to 60% gradient than to write it themselves. For PIs who are not reading your draft, I would take a similar approach, but your mileage may vary based on the PI. One thing that I think happens is maybe they're just really busy, but also maybe the draft is in such a state where they're like, this is, oof, buddy, eee. Like, ooh, this is maybe a review paper with just a hundred references all in chronological order. Or like, oh, this paper has one figure and the rest of the figures are not publishable because X, Y, Z. As someone providing feedback, you could appreciate that it would be hard for the PI to be like, Sally, your paper sucks. I mean, some PIs are like too, it's too easy for them to say that kind of thing, right? But PIs sometimes shy away from this level of emotional conflict. So if I hadn't heard back from my PI, I would probably reach out to them 
And I would say, look, I want to get this published. I know you do too. We have that, you know, go back to shared goals. We have this shared goal to publish this paper together. I haven't heard any feedback. So I'm wondering, do you have limited bandwidth? Here are some options. So you can present them with options you would say. One is we can just schedule a two-hour meeting and we can review the paper together. I did that with my PI to great success, right? He like didn't have two free hours to review it in his free time. But if I put on his real calendar, we reviewed it together, even if it was mostly me just sitting there quietly or like as quietly as I can sit there. And then he would say, this is confusing. And I would like note if he'd make changes in real time. It was great. The paper came out like two months later. Another thing you can do is you can say, okay, we can either schedule a meeting or we go through it together. Or you can be open and you can say, look, like this is my first paper or like this is my first review paper. Or even if you're post like this is my first paper about kidneys, like whatever, right? Would it be beneficial if there was someone else in the lab who I could sit down with and go through this paper to present a more, in order to present you with a more polished draft? Because PIs, like we talked about in our personal statements episode, right? Like when you're asking people to review your work, if your work isn't at a level where they can give constructive feedback, they might be hesitant to give any feedback at all. You know, so one option is, let's meet and talk about it. One option is, would you like me to review it with someone else so we can present you with something more polished? The third option is, do you just need more time? If so, give me a true deadline so I stop bothering you. Or sometimes PIs will say, like, just email me every week until I've done it, which is fine, but don't let that happen for more than four weeks if they don't do it. And don't be afraid to say, hey, I think we need some help with this. Let's bring in a co-author, someone that can help out. And like, I've been that person who was like called in to help a colleague to like get the paper to the next level. And I've been on the other side too, where it's like, we get to the writing stage and we just, it's just not there. And we have someone that contributes. So yeah, I would say there's a lot of manuscripts sitting on PI's desks right now. And it's not always because they're just a toxic PI that hates you. I mean, it sometimes is, okay, don't get me wrong. Like when they're like, you can't graduate until you have a publication. And then you're like, I have three publications that are on your desk. What are you doing? That's toxic. But if most of the time the PI is just gonna be busy, there always is something that's a little bit more urgent, right? Even if your paper is very important, I think in academia, urgency and importance often become conflated in a way that is not constructive, to student progress. Or any progress. I think about this daily. What is urgent and what is important? And they are not the same things. My biggest pro tip is to keep putting words onto paper because that is the hardest part. And sometimes, most of the time, for me, it's about having many goals. Today, I'm just going to focus on this one paragraph. Or today, I'm just going to like rain barf whatever I can think of for 20 minutes. You can easily get caught up in reading endless literature. There's literally infinite literature to read. You can get caught up in these other urgent tasks like emailing and stuff. But at the end of the day, you have to get words on paper to get the paper out. Uh, When I'm writing, I always make a bad draft. I like your phrasing, though. Uh, Call it a brain barf draft. And this is where you're like, incubate for question mark minutes. Then add question mark volume of DMSO. Then add question mark millimolar solution of NAISO4. Like this is what your draft can look like. And then later you go back, control F for question mark and fill everything in. Or same with the writing of the introduction section. Like my intro goes, cancer is bad. Yeah. Sentence one, cancer is bad. Sentence two, glioblastoma is worse. Sentence three, glioblastoma cells are weird because they crawl fast. Sentence four, can we make a gel that glioblastoma cells crawl fast in? 
sentence five, peg is a great gel. Let's make the sales crawl in them. Sentence six, like that can be your first draft. And then and the next day you have what each sentence, what the purpose of each sentence is. You just go back and you change the words and add your references and suddenly it's beautiful. I can't recommend a brain barf draft enough. This is how I have a PhD. This is how I wrote as many papers as I did. The brain barf draft. It's a beautiful thing. And then like, you brain barf for 30 minutes and suddenly you have like 300 words. Like that's the beauty of the brain barf draft is you're just like, type, 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 boom. You're like, look, I wrote seven pages. Amazing. Yep. And then you just control F for the question mark and fill everything in. Obviously, I feel like most of our listeners are going to be people who are writing their first three papers. But I think a lot more of our audience should be professors supporting students writing their first paper. Because by the time you're a senior faculty, your first paper was like a jillion papers ago. So a lot of these struggles may seem very distant to you, but I think it's important to put yourself in the shoes of students. So maybe if you know a faculty whose students are struggling with papers, send this to them. And one last thing, you know, I have to have a rant. The job of a faculty and the job of PhD programs is to train the next generation of scientists. So if you're a faculty out there and you are writing all the papers for your group because you do not want your students and postdocs to be either writing bad papers that you have to edit or like controlling the narrative of your story. I don't know, but there's PIs out there who like want to write all their own papers and not let their students do it. Get that out of here, man. Like, what are you doing? And also, if you struggle with this, there are people who are like professional editors where their job is like, they take a student's draft, they make it really good, and then they send it to the professor. So you can like hire one of these people if this is like holding your lab back. Like if you're a professor who can't handle like reading bad drafts, or if you're like a student who is so afraid to show anything to their professor until it's perfect. There's people out there. This episode, I hope it has been useful to you. And I know you can think of someone to whom it would be useful. So please share it with them. Share it on LinkedIn. That's where academics are going now that Twitter is whatever. Share it on Twitter. I mean, whatever. Please share this episode. If you have any feedback or if you have any ideas for future episodes, you can always find us, doubleshelixpodcast at gmail.com. Good luck writing your papers. I know it can be very stressful, but it is a skill and it will get easier every time. Yes. And thank you for listening. Until next time. Thanks, everyone.